Now, as we introduce um, the book of Genesis this morning, um, some of our older kids' church kids are staying with us. And uh, parents, if you're sitting with your kids and they're staying in with us, you might want to help them a little bit with the, the notes as we go through this morning. Um, if you are visiting with us, as you came in, there was a table at the back. There is a Bible back there if you don't have one and you would like one to follow along. There's also a sermon outline to go with this, and there are pens in the box there. Please feel free to avail yourself of those. If you're visiting with us this morning and you don't have a Bible and you would like one of your own, then on the back table as well, there are light blue uh, Bibles there. Please help yourself to one of those. We'd like you to have a copy of God's Word. All right. Well, since the beginning of December, I've been reading and studying in preparation for preaching the book of Genesis. And as I've done so, what has uh, been solidly impressed on my soul has been the glory and the majesty of the message of the Bible and the glory and majesty of the God of the Bible. And it's convicted me that I am a man of feeble mind and stammering lips, who's been given the responsibility to adequately and accurately convey this message to you this morning, to you, the congregation at Fellowship Oshawa. So I'm just going to ask that we would bow for a moment and just ask God's help with this, because this is a big task. Heavenly Father, your word is said to be living and powerful. It is majestic and awesome in its message because in and through it, you reveal yourself to us and you are majestic and awesome. This morning, I confess that on my own, I'm completely incapable of doing your word justice. I need you, Lord. I need your Holy Spirit working and speaking through me to impact the hearts and souls of the hearers in the audience today. Holy Spirit, do your work in us today. Speak to us through your word and thereby shape and change us accordingly for your glory and our good. Amen. Quick question. Is everybody able at the back able to hear clearly enough? Yeah? Okay. One other brief comment before we begin. We normally have a brief introduction to the message and then we dive into the message itself today. However, as we begin the study of this significant book of the Bible we're going to have a significant introduction as well in order to lay the groundwork for our study over the next several months. It may feel a little bit like a Bible college class today, just as a heads up. <clears throat> One thing I would encourage you, I'm a little bit concerned. I woke up at about 5 o'clock this morning, and I was just praying about this, um, and I thought, oh, Lord, have I, have I messed this up? Have I got it wrong? I don't want you to miss the... The, the forest for the trees, as it were. So if you are following along with the notes, the first chunk is titled, What is the Bible? And then the second chunk is entitled, What is the Book of Genesis? If you wish, um, you might just want to leave off on the notes for the first portion, What is the Bible? And just bask in the glory of the panorama of God's redemptive message as we go through it. I will post the answers to those blanks afterwards on the chat if you're really interested in getting those filled in. But I'm, uh, there was a part of me that was really concerned that you might be spending so much time trying to fill in the blanks that you'd miss the glory of this message. 
when we first get saved, it's because the Holy Spirit, possibly through some believing friend, maybe a preacher, maybe a YouTube video, or through the Word of God himself, has declared the gospel to us. He has convicted us of our sin, and he's introduced us to a Savior, the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. And so it's very common for us to want to start our studies there, to start with the parts about Jesus. And so we frequently dive into the Gospels first. And that's really what we did here at Fellowship Oshawa too, isn't it? When Chris and Jermaine and I took on the leadership of this church body, we began our sermon series where? Matthew, right? That's where we went. Now that's not wrong. I don't know about you folks, but man, I learned a lot by preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, And I've been going to church since the playpen. For someone that's newly saved, however, some of what Jesus might have said or did or referred to as we went through the Gospels might not have made much sense because the Gospel, God's good news of redemption, is a really big story. And it doesn't begin in Matthew. It begins where every story begins, at the beginning. But the story of God's redemption of mankind isn't found in the first book of the Bible. It's only introduced there. The story of God's redemption of mankind is such a big story that it requires the entire Bible to tell. So, let's start by taking a look at the question, what is the Bible? What is it, actually? Well, the Bible is a book made up of 66, why are we there? I don't know. There we are. It is a book made up of 66 smaller books of varying size. As Germain mentioned back in December, these books were written down over a period of about 1,500 years on three different continents by about 40 different human authors. These authors came from all different walks of life, They were politicians and farmers and royal advisors and shepherds and kings and fishermen and tax collectors. They wrote in different genres, history and narrative and prophecy and poetry. But these 66 books form one very remarkable book because they combine to tell one continuous story It is God's story. 2 Timothy 3.16, it's one of the other famous 3.16s. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. And that means that there isn't any scripture that isn't of value to us. We might not know what that value is yet, but we must never assume that, therefore, since we can't see a value, it therefore has no value. The Bible is the progressive revealing of God's redemptive plan for mankind. And as it is revealed, so is God's nature, God's character, God's very tender heart of love for man, his creation. Here's the overview or synopsis or the spoiler, if you will. God creates everything 
with the creation of mankind as the pinnacle, the masterpiece of his creation, and he lovingly and graciously provides everything that mankind needs. But they rebel against him and fall under his judgment, which is death. Now, all of that occurs in the first three chapters. The rest of the Bible uh, is about the story of how God progressively, in his own time and his own manner, enacts his eternal plan to redeem his rebellious creation because they are incapable of rescuing themselves. He does so at his own cost and for his glory. The Bible, as most of you know, is divided into two portions, the Old and New Testaments. The Old Testament consists of 39 books, which, in a nutshell, describe God's dealings first with mankind in general, starting with Adam. Adam, as steward of God's creation, is meant to worship and obey God and display his glory to the world. That's his overarching job, to worship and obey God and display his glory to the world. But instead of worshiping God, Adam worships his own desires. Instead of obeying, Adam rebels. Instead of seeking God's glory, Adam seeks his own. And we have the fall. Yet God's redemptive plan is not derailed. God's plan continues through a man named Abraham and his descendants, who eventually become the nation Israel. Israel is intended to be the nation that would worship and obey God and display his glory to the world. This is going to be a recurring theme. But instead of worshiping God, Israel worships false gods. Instead of obeying, Israel rebels. Yeah. And instead of them seeking God's glory, Israel seeks their own glory, demonstrating the reality of the sin nature in them that was inherited from Adam. Yet, through Abraham and the nation Israel, God would provide a person who would do perfectly what Adam and Israel failed to do. He would perfectly worship and obey God. And he would perfectly display his glory to the world. The Old Testament covers the story up to the arrival of this person. And it ends like a season finale cliffhanger. The nation of Israel is troubled. They are in trouble. And they are looking for the Messiah, this rescuer, this redeemer that God promised to provide. And as we read back in December, the Old Testament ends with God, because it's his story, remember, with God giving both a warning and a promise. We read those verses in Malachi 4. I'm going to read them for you again. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, 
The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So, the Old Testament is the account of God's story up to the first coming of the Redeemer of rebellious mankind. Now we move into the New Testament. In the New Testament, the next 27 books, details the first coming of the Redeemer, who, as we well know, is none other than God's own Son. And we are awestruck by the realization that not only is God directing history and politics and culture and time as he writes his story, God himself enters the story as the hero, as the redeemer. The infinite, eternal God enters the womb of a woman, wraps himself in human flesh, and is born as a helpless infant among the very people he came to redeem, so that he could be, as Matthew records, Emmanuel, which means God with us. The God of the Bible is powerfully present. The Apostle Paul, however, in the letter to the Corinthians, refers to Jesus as the last Adam. The last Adam. It's an interesting connection. Jesus comes as the righteous representative of mankind. He achieves what Adam and the rest of the human race have continually failed to do. Jesus perfectly worships and obeys God and displays his glory to the world. He does the job. He finishes the task. And this makes him qualified to be the acceptable sacrifice on mankind's behalf. (laughs) Fully God and yet fully man as well, so that he could suffer the punishment that we had earned for our rebellion, so that he could die the death that we deserved for our staggering offense against holy God, the creator. And after his death, he arose from the grave, demonstrating the validity of his sacrifice on our behalf and his perfect satisfaction of God's justice and holiness against our sin. By doing so, he has redeemed a people. But a people this time that are not born of the right human ancestry or genealogy. No, they are born again. They are born of the Spirit. As Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 5, and 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit 
his spirit. The New Testament begins with the miraculous arrival of God's Redeemer to earth the first time. Then it describes the developing of this new entity that is created of the Spirit, which is called the church. And it contains men and women, boys and girls, who have been drawn by God from all peoples and nations because it is a spiritual entity to which one gains entry only by God's grace through faith. The books of the New Testament primarily deal with the life and reality and testimony of the church as it exists on earth after Christ's return to heaven. This is the part of the story in which we presently find ourselves, brothers and sisters. That's where we are in the story. And once again, our role is to worship and obey God and display his glory to the world. Can I get an amen? And the story continues toward the conclusion where Jesus Christ returns, now the conquering king, to claim his rightful position as king of kings and lord of lords. He will punish wickedness. He will eliminate sin and death and sorrow. His kingdom will have full dominion. And under his rule, he will be worshipped and obeyed, and his glory will be displayed forever and ever. Amen? Is that not the most majestic and inspiring story ever? And it's true, all of it. But now I want to ask you a question. In light of this overview of the Bible, in light of this overview of all of history, how do you want the record of your part in God's story to read? If, as I mentioned just a minute ago, your part in the story is as a redeemed member of Jesus' glorious church, and your role is to worship and obey God and display his glory to the world, how do you want that to read? If God is writing the account down somewhere, do you want the record to be of your failure? Or do you want it to read that you are faithful to worship and obey him and display his glory to the world around you in the corner in which God has placed you? God doesn't necessarily ask you to go to some far-flung nation and preach the gospel there. He might. He might. But he is asking you, in whatever little corner of Oshawa or Whitby or Hampton or Bowmanville or wherever it is that you live, in that corner, maybe it's in your neighborhood. Maybe it's at your school. Maybe it's at your place of work. Maybe it's in your family. Wherever it is that God has placed you, He's just asking you to be faithful to worship and obey and display his glory. Now, you can't be successful in your own strength and determination here. 
I don't know about you, but it's only January 7th. I've already dropped the ball on some of my so-called resolutions. <laughs> Can I get another amen? Yeah. My resolve tends to be weak. Frankly, it sucks. But as a community, as a church body, we can encourage one another to fulfill our role. We can encourage and invite accountability and fellowship and discipleship and devotion. That's what discipleship is. It's us getting together and encouraging one another in our walk as believers. Our walk is hard. The world out there will tell you, uh, Christianity, it's a crutch for the weak. Man, I tell you, it would sometimes be a lot easier to not be a Christian. It's hard. Some days it's really hard. But you know what? God has given us a family to belong to. He has given us brothers and sisters who can come alongside, can encourage us, can build us up, can sometimes give us a kick in the pants if that's what we need, can love on us when we're hurting and we're in need. (laughs) On Sundays, you can come here freely and you can worship together with other brothers and sisters. You can receive encouragement and teaching and exhortation and instruction and inspiration from the word being publicly read and taught in this place. And as we sing songs together, it unites us, it binds us. And then from there, you can go and you can obey God each day of your life and thereby display his glory to the world. It's our job but we don't have to do it alone. So now that we've had the overview, the thousand-foot view, if you will, let's move to the beginning of the story and start to consider some of the details. I guarantee that it will cause you to marvel and wonder all over again. All right, so what is the book of Genesis? Like any coherent worldview, Genesis addresses a very important question. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why should there be something? Was there a time when there was nothing and then there was something? Scientists and philosophers ask these questions all the time, and then they try to put together, philosophers especially, try to put together a story, a coherent story, one that makes sense and connects well all the way through the story without contradiction to answer this question. Why is there something rather than nothing? In the book of Genesis, we're going to find out why there is something rather than nothing. We're going to find out what there is. We're going to find out how it came to be, who put it there, and why. Now, Genesis means beginnings. But Genesis isn't just about the beginning of the world as we know it. It's about the beginning of a number of things. Mankind, relationships, marriage and sexuality, family and children, government. And it tells us exactly why the world we live in today is, the, is in the absolute mess that it's in. That should be no surprise, right? You just gotta, you just gotta check out the news, whether you do that on TV or the internet or however you find your news feeds. This world's a mess, and it's not getting better. Not only that, 
But Genesis reveals to us why we are the mess that we are. The reality is that the world's a mess because we're a mess. And we can try and avoid it or ignore it, but the reality is that the problems stem from us. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's address a few details. So the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, five books. Those are called the Pentateuch, which means five scrolls. It means five scrolls, because, of course, they wrote on scrolls back in the day, right? But it forms one record, one story, kind of like the story of the Lord of the Rings is divided into three portions, right? The Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, Return of the King. It's all one story, but it's divided into three portions, The Pentateuch is one story divided into five portions. And each book of the Pentateuch starts where the last one left off. So you can read them from start to finish throughout, and you go, oh yeah, I see how this is all connected together. The Pentateuch was Israel's first inspired body of Scripture. For many years, it was Israel's only Bible. Jewish people commonly referred to it as the Torah, or the law. You might remember when the lawyer asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was in Matthew chapter 22, and in verses 37 to 40, Jesus responded, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the Law and the prophets. Two divisions, two chunks. And that's how they described their Bible, which we often refer to as the Old Testament. The law, that really means those first five books. The rest of the books together were often commonly referred to as the prophets. It included the major and minor prophets, some of the history of of Israel's kings and kingdoms. And there was the poetry pieces uh, in there as well. So the law refers to the Pentateuch and the prophets as a general term that relates to the rest of what we describe as the Old Testament. Now, though it isn't recorded in the Pentateuch itself, the Old and New Testament authors refer to Moses as the author of the first five books. They're sometimes referred to as the books of Moses. Being trained and educated as the son of Pharaoh... Moses would have been a natural candidate for authoring this first written record. So this puts the date of writing at approximately 1445 B.C. And lastly, it's also important for us to consider the audience as well. Who is he writing to? That matters. Because as we read through Genesis, and I think you're going to start to see that as we go along the way, he makes references to things without explaining them. Because the audience knows what he's talking about. If I make a reference in this audience to 9-11, the majority of us, if not all of us, will know what the heck I'm talking about, right? 9-11, oh, that was uh, September 11th. 2001, when the planes crashed into the Twin Towers, right? That was a historic event. We know what that means. But 
if you were to probably wait, and I've kind of experienced this in my teaching career, wait another 10 or 15 years and make that reference, and everybody kind of looks at you and blinks and says, I have no idea what you're talking about, sir. And that's when you recognize how old you are. Anyway, Moses does some of that as he's talking to these people. He makes references to things, and there's no real explanation. So we're going to come across a few things as we move our way through um, the book of Genesis. We're going to come across some things that we go, I don't know what that is. And there's no explanation there as to what it is. For those of us who are outside of the audience, that's okay. But this is one thing that we do want to keep in mind. He is writing to the nation Israel, but not a nation planted in its own land. Moses is writing to a people who are wandering through the wilderness. They don't have a home yet. Moses is writing to a people whose entire surrounding culture has, since the day they were born, hammered home the message that you are worthless and despised because you're not Egyptian. And the Egyptians specifically hated sheep. So the Israelites being shepherds was just absolutely disgusting to Egyptians. And that's why the whole Israel nation, and the nation of Israel, was shoved over onto one part of the land, the land of Goshen. You'll read that um, in, in the story. And that was actually God at work there because he wanted to keep his people together, not have them simply interspersed among the Egyptians. But these people have been told, you are worthless, you are despised, you are good for nothing but being slaves of Egypt's pharaoh. Expendable, manual laborers with no inherent value, your lives are of no worth. You die, I'll just replace you with another one tomorrow. For 400 years, this has been their reality as a people, and that external message has slowly but surely been internalized as well. They think like slaves, because that's all they've ever been, that's all they've ever known. Even they have a hard time thinking of themselves as anything else. So let's take a look at the start of this amazing and awe-inspiring message to them and to us. Turn, if you would, please, to the very beginning of the Bible. We're only going to have time this morning to look at chapter 1, verse 1. And as we do so, I encourage you to just quieten your spirit and absorb the profound majesty of these first few verse, uh, this first verse. And it reads as follows. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we're just going to stop there for this morning. Let's keep this thought at the forefront. The God of the Bible is both eternally existent and powerfully present. The God of the Bible is both eternally existent and powerfully present. In this one verse, the introductory verse to God's word, we get two key things being driven home. Number one, God is uncreated. God is uncreated. The passage begins with these profound words, in the beginning, God. It automatically begs a question, the beginning of what? Like, 
Typically, a beginning refers to the start of a time period, like the start of a race, for example, is the beginning of the time period for which the race lasts, and it implies that there'll be an end of that as well. But when we're discussing the beginning, we're typically talking about the time period when everything starts. That's how we like to think, anyway. And lo and behold, God is already there. We are time-bound creatures. We struggle to deal with the concepts of beyond time or measureless amounts of time. As a math teacher, I was specifically hired to teach calculus uh, at the high school where I worked. And in that course, one of the topics we considered was limits. Uh, The boundaries of functional values as we let the functions operate limitlessly or infinitely. We struggle to wrap our finite minds around infinite concepts. Here in the very first words of the Bible, we are confronted with a God who is infinite, a God who is beyond, a God who is outside of the limitations of our time-bound understanding. I remember as a young person one time, somebody said to me, if you want to kind of get a picture of what eternity is, uh, timelessness, they said, imagine this gymnasium right here, and there's a little sparrow outside, and he picks up a little grain of barley, and every thousand years, he flies into the gym and drops that grain of barley in here, and then he goes away. And a thousand years later, there's another sparrow that comes in and drops a grain of barley in here, and off he goes again. And then by the time this entire gymnasium is full of barley, we've only just started. It's a poor analogy, people, because <laughs> eternity is beyond us, right? Infinity is beyond us, but God is there. He's not limited by time. In fact, he created it. Moses doesn't try to explain him or rationalize him or justify him. He simply addresses God's ex- eternal existence as fact. He just states the point. In the beginning, God. God was already there. But you need to understand that Moses is also proclaiming to these former slaves of Egypt that God, their Redeemer God, the God of the Bible, well, he isn't like the God of the Egyptians. He didn't originate out of what was there. He was there before there was anything else. He is eternal. You have to understand that the the mythology surrounding the Egyptian gods, like Ra, the sun god, when you go back and you read some of the stories, you discover that they too start their story with waters, limitless waters and darkness and an abyss, like a deep cavern underwater. And our second verse in the Bible, if we had read a little bit further, would have said the earth was formless and void and the spirit of God moved over moved in the darkness over the waters, right? So they have that darkness and that waters thing as well. But then there is some event, and this portion of land comes up out of that dark abyss, and there is Ra on top of that portion of land. So Ra originates out of the water. God is not like that. God is the creator of all. There's another famous passage of scripture that begins with the phrase, in the beginning. 
if you would just keep your finger there in Genesis chapter 1 and flip over to the New Testament to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And we're going to look at verse 1 there. John's gospel begins with very similar words. John's gospel begins with these words. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, if we read further down in the passage, it tells us that the word... So there's this individual, this person who was with God in the beginning, and he was God also. He had all the characters and attributes of God. And he was there with God in the beginning before anything else was there. And then it says, and so we're like, who is this person? And then it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we're like, when did God become flesh and dwell among us? Of course. It's in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he's the word that John is talking about. So we've got the word of God, where God reveals himself to us. And we've got the word, Jesus, the Christ, who came and revealed God to us. So there's a person who's referred to as the Word, who turns out to be Jesus, who's stated to be God, and therefore it should be no surprise that we see the same attributes of infinity and eternality, I think that's a word, attributed to Jesus because he was in the beginning with God before there was anything else. Now if you can keep your finger there and then flip back again to Genesis chapter 1, because we're going to come back to John 1 in just a few moments. Genesis chapter 1, the word that we translate as God, in the beginning, God, uh, is Elohim. Elohim. It is a plural word, not a singular word. The singular form of that word is El. And so if you are reading through some of the city names as Jesus is is walking through Judea um, in the Gospels, there are cities like Bethel, Beth-El. Beth means house, El means God. So Bethel means house of God. Right? And, uh, and so El is the singular form, Elohim is the plural form. And very specifically here, it is Elohim that is used referring to God in this first verse. In, for clarity in English, we often use the phrase Godhead. It helps remind us that we're talking about more than one. Paul does that in Colossians. So it's clear that there is a plurality to the person of God described here. Now, Moses doesn't spend a lot of time sort of, you know, unpacking that. He just states it as reality, as fact. And if you moved ahead to verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, then you would read there that it says, then God said, let us make man in our image. And that grammar would be completely wrong if God was singular. It makes total sense if God is plural. So not only is Moses communicating that God is eternal, but there's a plurality. God is plural. The Egyptian gods with which the Israelites would have been so familiar had nothing like this. And that's the point 
Moses is establishing the God of the Bible as completely other than any of the gods with which they were familiar. He's establishing something absolutely new and different. Not that he's making it up. He is telling them about it. He is introducing them to the God he met in the wilderness. So God is eternal and God is plural. And next we learn that God is the creator. God is the creator. The verse continues, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So while God himself is uncreated, he is the creator and the source of all created things. In what amounts to 10 simple words in English, Moses ascribes power and majesty and greatness to this God. He alone has brought everything, everything into existence. If we flip back again to John chapter 1, just one more time, then in verse 3 we read this. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now recall, the him that we're talking about here is the word. We have the privilege as New Testament believers to use the New Testament to interpret and understand the Old Testament. We've got insight that those people in the Old Testament never had. And so we discover that this plurality, the New Testament starts to flesh that out and say there is God the Father, there is God the Son, and there is God the Holy Spirit. And they are a unity in mind, in purpose, in heart, in all of those things, in power. They have different roles. And one of the roles that's been assigned to the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, who we know as Jesus the Christ, he was the active agent in creation here. Jesus was the person of the Godhead who did the creating. Everything was created by him. Nothing was created that wasn't created by him. So John is very clear to express it in both the positive and the negative. He's leaving no room for any argument here. He made everything, and, he, and there's nothing that he didn't make. So we're just going to nail that door shut, right? When we look at the creation around us, it is not for us to marvel just at the creation and stop there. Marvel, yes. I have an honors degree in biology. I loved being a biologist and studying biology. And I had my classmates, I was the only believer in my class, and I had my classmates look at me and go, how can you be a biologist and be a Christian? And in my head, I just thought, how can you be a biologist and not be a Christian? Every single thing about it has God's fingerprints all over it. Anyway, I get a little passionate about that, but that's okay. So when we look at the creation around us, we don't stop there. The creation is pointing to the creator. And that's where we go. And who is that creator? It's Jesus. Where does the glory belong? The glory belongs to Jesus. One last passage before we wrap up. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, and I'll put it up here on the screen. It reads as follows. Long ago, 
At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again, this passage in Hebrews, like the passage in John, reinforces this truth. Jesus, the Redeemer, is Jesus, the Creator. He's the second person of the Godhead, and so he is eternally existent. And as the Creator and Sustainer, he is also powerfully present. Just because he is eternal, don't let that mean to you that he's distant, because he is not He's present and powerful. Brothers and sisters, just like the world of the Israelites, our world is full of messages that you are nothing if you don't measure up to some determined image. If you don't think that it's that bad, people, ask your kids. If you aren't this or that, if you don't do this or that, if you don't say this or that or have this or that, well, then socially, you're an outcast. If you don't have a phone, or you're not athletic, or you're not pretty, or you don't go to parties, or whatever it might be that some group determines is the thing that you ought to do or be or say or whatever, then in this world's estimation, you don't have worth and you don't belong. That's exactly the message of the Egyptians to the Israelites. God's message transcends cultures and civilizations and artificial value systems because it comes from God and God is outside of time. He is eternally existent and therefore his message is eternally true. God's word is as true today as it was in the beginning. He still tells us that we, that you, have inherent value and worth. Why? Because he made you. Praise God. Given what we've been reminded of this morning regarding the majestic and awesome story of the gospel, the redemptive plan of a majestic and awesome God who loves rebellious sinners like us and has made us part of his glorious church through the perfect work of his son Jesus on the cross, I ask you again, how would you want the record of your part in God's story to read? How will 2024 be different because of what God has shown you today? How will the truth of who God is and what he's done to make you who you are today change how you will live your life this year? What will you choose to stop doing or start doing or do differently or do better? How will this truth impact your boldness for the gospel your discipline regarding prayer and Bible reading, your selflessness towards your spouse, your family, your church, your neighbors. And I know it's not all about doing. It's about knowing who God is and who we are in light of who God is first. That impacts our actions, though. And again, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking checklist stuff. I am talking the fact that we have been faced this morning and and reminded of this amazing story of what God has done, his actions to redeem us. 
And James tells us that our actions need to follow what we believe. I pray, brothers and sisters, that our vision of our eternally existent and powerfully present God this morning revolutionizes how we see ourselves and our part in God's great story of his redemptive plan. Let's pray. God and Father, we, we are humbled by this reminder of your story. And as we look forward to delving into the introduction to the story, discovering why we're in the mess that we're in and what you have started in order to redeem us from it, to bring us to where we are right now, God, we just stand in awe. And I believe that was Moses' intention as he wrote this book, was to lay before the people the awesomeness of the God who has redeemed them from slavery to Egypt and that they might turn and worship him in humility and love. God, I pray that would be the same response from our hearts, that we would worship you, that we would desire to obey you and the things that you have called us to, ignoring the messages of this world around us that we would be diligent to display your glory to the world around us. We are your people. We are your people. You have redeemed us, not even with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, just let us revel in the wonder of that, the glory of it, the love that you have for us. And let us respond. Let, uh, let us not be able to hold back, not be able to shut up about it, but just be able to tell people with boldness and joy what you have done, what you have rescued us from. May your name be glorified because of us. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.